out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Edward uh, Tudor Pohl and uh, of Tim Paul Tudor, um, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. As you know, um, yes, singer-songwriter and also prolific actor as well. He's done so much. Anyway, you'll find out much, much more about all his life in this interview, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore because it'll be a spoiler and we don't want to spoil it. Apart from one thing, halfway through the phone somehow, or for some reason, completely cut out, which meant that uh, then... There's a little bit of a jump in the interview, but you'll get the general gist. If it sounds a bit sort of, that's a bit odd, it's probably because I've had to, um, yes, edit it and then stick it together. And frankly, Mr. Shankly, that's as good as it gets. So, um, look, after many minutes of casual chat and interest and banter, we got down to the very exciting subject that were the early formative years and what was, what was that moment with Edward? Edward, give us more. I was lucky enough to have been born... To remember when the Beatles started, and I must have been about eight, it's 1963 when suddenly, I mean, it was the first time we'd ever known anything like it, Beatlemania, where everyone was talking about it, and I understood their simple songs, and I, of course, joined in. I love the Beatles, too. We all love the Beatles. Yes. And um, I got little bubblegum cards of the Beatles. So that was all very nice. But then, the Rolling Stones, I saw them on television Oh, man, my whole world, I've never recovered from that moment to this day. Right. Because uh, I just fell so utterly in love, not only with the record, which I think was, maybe it's all over now, or time is on my side. Yes. But with them, and my life was such hell that I just cleaved unto the Rolling Stones. I thought about them all day long. I talked about them. I listened to their records from the age of sort of nine right through, you know, my teens. Yes, that's interesting. That's your answer, mate. That's your answer. And I still love them today, and I'm still listening to their latest single, which was played last week. How does, how, how does, how can that be possible? And I'm now 65. Yes, well, absolutely. And well, it's the same group. I know. I mean, man, that's just unbelievable. That's that staying power. That's like a Duracell battery. Because interesting enough, okay, just a slight sidestep here. But I come from the wonderful world that is East Anglia, and I live near, or used to live near, Wingfield. So your name has a quite a resonance with that area, doesn't it? With Wingfield? Yes, the Delapole Arms. Oh, uh, no, I'm not Delapole. Hmm. I'm Pole. Pole. Slightly different branch. <laughs> Slightly different. I, mean, you know, I could tell you where I come from. Um, I come from. Well, there were three brothers. The eldest one was Edward IV. The youngest one became Richard III. And the middle one was the Duke of Clarence. And I'm descended from him. Right. Got so it's not Dulla Pole. Um, in fact, there's a book called Margaret Pole, who was my granny and his daughter. And man, that's a terror. She, she had a sorry ending. But when Henry VIII came along and changed everything to, you know, destroy the church. Yes. We, the Poles didn't like that. So he hated the Poles. Right. 
Okay, then. So you never made any of those kind of journeys into the heartland of Suffolk to find the Wingfield Delapole Arms, which is a pub, by the way. Um, well, I love Suffolk and Norfolk. I love East Anglia. Yes. I must say, so I'm very fond of that hub right. but of that, England. Yeah. Well, that's quite a background, isn't it? That's quite, um, quite a bit of history you've got there. Yes, but I mean, me and 10 million other people. Because <laughs> by the time you get this, you know, it's hardly a badge of uniqueness. But no. it's interesting, of course. No, it's quite nice. And anyway, I think it doesn't matter who, you, who your father is. It doesn't make, doesn't make you a, a better or worse person. No. You know. It just means that you can follow your family tree back quite quickly-ish. Well, someone's done the work, I guess, haven't they? Well, I've never gone in for that, you know, you can ancestry.co. <laughs> <laughs> Forward slash, was I the king of England? Could I have been? Yes, well, we're, probably, we're all descended from Edward Third. I mean, I guarantee you are. <laughs> nice. So then, okay. Okay, I was just very excited because there's a there was a nice pub, the Delapole Arms in Wingfield. That um, I thought, oh, blimey, O'Reilly, there you go. I think that's where Kate and God, what's his name, the future King of England's going. They went and had a party there once. Oh God, I don't know. I'm not very good on the royal family, am I? Kate's husband, what's his name? William. William, there you go. They they went there and stayed the night there once many years ago. So um, that was good. But anyway, back to the musical journey. So the Rolling Stones, they're, they're bad. So were you a Stones fan as in the Mick Taylor years or the kind of Brian Jones No, years? I'm talking about when they started. Yeah, but then they had they, that... Because the Beatles came along and the Stones came along maybe 11 months later. But and there was, it was chalk and cheese, you know, they were the kind of... But it was them I absolutely... I mean, I didn't stop loving the Beatles. No. But the Stones, it was the more... It was the more, It was everything, because they they gave me an escape from the bad space I was in. So they were more than just... I mean, they became my parents, in fact. Mick was mum and Keith was dad. Right. And I've followed their uh, example all along and what that's led me to where I am now. And in fact, they have, have in fact, set an extremely good example... For yes. anyone. Absolutely. Keep well, going, don't compromise, don't give up, persist, yes. stick to your guns, be true. And and get a good manager. Well, no, they didn't teach me that lesson because they didn't have one themselves. <laughs> yeah. They eventually got it sorted though, didn't they? They eventually got it sorted. So when did you start to um gravitate then from being a fan to being in a band? Well, well, it was any of the punk rock thing that made it seem even possible that you could be in a band. And I was at drama school when that kicked off, the punk rock thing. Right. And I immediately got it. But, I mean, I wasn't going to... I was at Rada, and I thought I might as well just finish my course. And that's so completely all-embracing, that life, when you're morning, noon and night, you're just immersed in it. So I didn't get out till April 77. Right. No, April 78. And then I joined in because I thought, well, I can write songs just as good as them. So I'd always tried to write songs. Yes. Um, ever since I saw the, the animals on the television doing House of the Rising Sun, it got straight to number one. The DJ was terribly excited. And, and I was about 10. And, and, and when I heard it, I thought, well, I know exactly why that's got to number one. It's absolutely brilliant. And then I thought, OK, I bet I could write a song that could get to number one. Yes. You know, I sort of felt that I could. So I went upstairs and I hadn't even got a guitar then. And I invented a little ditty 
which if I knew you a little bit better, I would sing you now. <laughs> not very good, highly derivative, but it was my first stab. Yes, I suppose it was. I always remember Spinal Tap where they were asked, you know, what their first song was, and they start. They were in the sort of cafe, weren't they? And they started singing it and humming it. It was it was a quite a simplistic ditty, though I don't think they musically progressed that much either. So it was the irony. Oh, I missed that bit. You see, when I saw Spinal Tap, I couldn't see what was funny at all. <laughs> you thought, I thought, yeah, I thought, yeah, because it was so just like whatever all bands are, you know, without <laughs> even satirised. Yes. But did you see Bad News, the comic strips Bad News as well? Oh, no, I hated the comic strips. They're hideously middle class, nothing to do with punk rock. No, I did not. Oh, good. I any of that. You've got to have standards in life, haven't you? So what were your... Did you have any brothers and sisters that sort of had an influence? or your, Were your parents musical or artistic? No. That's straightforward. No. So what, well, what I mean, no, don't ask me about my, the parents. It was, it was, the childhood was a nightmare. I said, I'm writing my memoirs. You'll get all the grisly details then. Oh, God. Oh, dear. That's not good. Did, was it a case of leave home ASAP? A case of what? As soon as possible, leaving home. Well, it was finding a way to an escape when you're eight. You can't really escape, can you? No, that's that's a bit too young to... Or nine or ten. Yeah, no. No, no. but it was... Um, well, I'll tell you the story. You know, I survived. Yeah. <laughs> Could have been worse. Okay. What was the story? What story? Oh, you said you were going to tell me the story. Well, I will when you when you get the bio. Oh, right. I'm start going and telling about my awful childhood now, man. Am I? No, okay, okay. Sorry, I was I was pausing there. That that was a dramatic pause. I didn't even go to. Well, you can always edit that out if you wish. I will. Okay. <laughs> if you feel if you felt it wasn't dramatic enough. No, it was quite dramatic. So then, did you with the band going fast forward and oh, your childhood? I was kind of like, oh, interesting. But did you? It's all interesting, mate. It's, I mean, I've never looked back before. I've had a most extraordinary life. Yeah. What was it like looking back? Well, I just think it's kind of um, pretty amazing to, to have blagged being the, 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 a lead singer in the Sex Pistols and also blagging the, getting into a play in the West End with Rex Harrison and Edward Fox playing the juvenile lead. Well, that, that, that is... I mean, that's such a contrast. I never got any credit for that, but I think that's pretty impressive. Well, it's very impressive, actually. You you were sort of... So did you feel the stars had lined up and everything was kind of clicking into play? Did it feel like it was coming quite easy at that stage? At which stage? The the mid... Well, 77, basically. 76, 77. Because it sounded like... Well, no. I mean, I left drama school and and then, you know... Got into a band, and and then progressed, and then another, and then and then the sex. So it all happened over time, and then you eventually get to some sort of pinnacle, like top of the pops. But I hadn't really looked beyond that. I um, mean, it actually did happen rather too quickly. Consequently, we hadn't really got enough foundation to sustain it because we hadn't paid our dues. We couldn't even play very well. I mean, it was complete rubbish when McLaren said the Sex Pistols couldn't play, but. I mean, we couldn't. We could play, but it was like crude, you know. So we we weren't that good yes. musically. Did you feel there was potent? Did you sort of see potential in what you were doing? Did I see potential in it? Yes, I mean, you know, because most. Do you mean? Well, most bands, I would imagine, ninety percent. But I have never done this, so I can't give you the figures. I'm just pulling them out of air here. 
probably don't make it, do they? <laughs> they, they? They don't obviously make it. We don't really hear the stories of all the bands that never make it and they only play in front of their friends, family and anybody else. They can emotionally blackmail to see them and they never release yes. a record. I Whereas know, actually yeah, we, we only get, get we, we get the little, you know, the iceberg bit, don't we? And and so obviously, you know, making it, as we say, you know, we can sort of assume that means, you know, you, you start to play around the country, the world, you release records and stuff like that. And but, but obviously there must be lots of people who did have the talent but didn't make it and other people that you think, my God, how did that happen? That was just, they, they were totally talentless. As, as they said in Spinal Tap, they had that much talent as he held up two fingers very close together saying that, that much talent. So did you feel that with the, with the early Sex Pistols lineup that um, there was going to be, yes, they, could you see what was coming next? Well, it depends. It all depends on how determined you are. Um, I mean, it's like tennis, you know, if you're just that much hungry, you're going to have the edge. And I was so hungry for it. And every time I felt discouraged and and thought, oh, just pack it in, I thought, well, hang on, if you do that, it'll simply prove that you were never going to make it in the first place. So I never dared pack it in because I'd have to face that reality. Yeah. So we kept on going and persistence always pays off, including if you're not even that good. Yes, you've got to want it, haven't you? That is that is the key to life, actually. Yeah, the persistence is the key. The key of keeping on doing it and keeping at it. I mean, the, the record company boss said to me, you know, it's a question of getting up, doing it, and then keeping on doing it. In other words, forever, like the Rolling Stones. Yes. That's the deal, really. So you've got to be prepared. Maybe not everyone wants would want to do that. No, absolutely. Most, most Well, the music world is, is quite ferocious and often short-lived and, and often with very little money at the end of it so it's kind of there's a lot of reasons why people don't keep going but there are reasons for wanting to go you know like most people who keep doing it like I don't know Lemmy from Motorhead just said well I'm never going to get a proper job so I'm never going to be a plumber so um, there you go it was going to be rock and roll or nothing what was your memories of recording the the great rock and roll swindle well you appeared in the film didn't you well, yes. No, but let me just say that it's, it's down to your, to, to your motivation. Why do you choose to play music? See, if you go into it to, to be kind of rich and famous, then that's not, not, a, not a proper reason. And so you'll fail. But if you really love music, you're going to play it anyway. I mean, I play all day. I mean, I play, I just love music. And essentially, it's me and my guitar. Yes. And um, that's, that's always been an absolute constant. And just because you having to be, you know, favoured the month or not, it doesn't affect when you're at home playing your music, does it? No, absolutely. And uh, it's, it's it's always strange with the these kind of X-Factor people saying, if I don't get it, I'll give up music. Whereas you think, well, if you... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because all they want is to be famous. Yeah. Such a crock, as, 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 as something to aim for. Because no one seems to be on that. I, I mean, I, even I might have been guilty of that. I just wanted to be on top of the pops, but... Then you get there, and then what? And that's when things get really hard. Yes, that's when... But you're unprepared. You haven't even thought beyond that stage. I know. We couldn't all be on, was it? Yes, Sheena Easton was on something called The Big Time, wasn't it, with Esther Ransom, and she made it, and she kept going. Sheena, that's the Scot. That's the Scots for you. They just don't. They don't slow down, do they? Once they, once they Is get the. What, what, what did she say? Well, no, well, Sheena Easton. I mean, she was a factory girl in Scotland. And I then, know, I know. We were on the same top of the pops together. Oh right, and then she was on that program, The Big Time, with Esther Ransom, and she made that single. I think it was something like Nine to Five, or I don't know. God, it's one of those singles. Yes. 
some... Well, she was a very hard... She was, she was determined, all right, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah. And then the next minute she was in... She left her child behind, apparently. Well, yeah. I think she had four husbands, actually, which I thought, well, probably best not to be the fifth. But, um... You'll have to Google that bit. But then she was suddenly appearing... I, will, because I don't know what you talked about. <laughs> I did. I was quite surprised. But then she was suddenly in Minneapolis working with Prince or guesting on Prince. And I was thinking, God, she's done well for herself. And she, yeah. she's, she's seen the, the, the gold at the end of that rainbow. And she's, she hasn't sort of got off at the border and said, no, I'm not leaving Scotland. I'm, I'm going to work with Prince. So that's... Well, I think anybody, if they're actually prepared to go to America... And set up because the Americans will always give you the time of day if you're the newcomer, and if you're any good, you'll immediately. That's that's the difference between America and England, whereas they're a bit more. They take all their geniuses for granted more in England. Yes, but that's... of course, most English people aren't prepared to throw up sticks and go and live in Los Angeles. No, and try and make it from there, are they? No, they could... But if you do that, you know, you're any good. It's one way to do it. It's true. It's true. Well, I think the uh, the Wurzels all went to Australia because apparently they couldn't. Um, no one liked them in England, but they had a big fan base in Australia, so most of them went over there. So that's what happened to the Wurzels. <laughs> I, I thought they were a joke band, were they? Probably, but they probably realised they made money and they thought this is better. No, than... we get this, man. I've played, seen them. We've been on the same bill as, uh, earlier this century. Excellent. The Wurzels, and by by now, of course, they've they've sort of become a. The cachet of sort of wonderfulness. Yes, well, absolutely, and you probably would, and you probably wouldn't go up to him and say, with the opening line, "I think you're a joke, man." Because they'd still probably want to beat you up, even if they have a walking stick. But yeah, and in fact, I mean, I wasn't conscious; I, I just took them for granted. But you know, I was ha- happy to, to. I mean, I was pleased to meet them. Yeah, well, I, 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 I you know, if you sit there, you know, glamorous, aren't they? The bands you see on telly. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'd say that to the Wurzels, though. I remember his kind of Well, weird... all right. OK, maybe I'm bigging them up too much. They were all right. They were OK. They're they... still going. Let me, let me report. Yeah, well, that, that's good. And so are the Rubettes. I did an interview with the one of the Rubettes. Do you know, just as a brief thing, OK, there are three Rubettes, there are three bands called the Rubettes. There you go. That's, that's... Is, is there anyone with the original one in? Yeah, they've all got a few. I think they've all got an original me- member or two and they've all said no I'm the Rubettes and the other one's gone no I'm the Rubettes so no, there are three no. well they've always had they got into a they had a lawsuit about the high voice on the front of one of their records right yes that's yeah, the... And the bloke who sang the high bit you know I don't sugar know, baby in the court. sugar baby that's yeah. right yeah. well you know what they say where there's a hit there's a writ oh nice Nice one. What's the other line? Change a word, claim a third. You know, writing set credits or something, wasn't it? I think people like Robbie say, oh, actually, I'm going to just add a couple of words in there. Now I'm going to be having writing credits with that. Thank you very much. Robbie Williams says. No, I don't think you can. You can't do that. It's ridiculous. Well, I think... Otherwise, you know, I could just change the word, one word out of my way. And have a hit with it. That wouldn't count, surely. Well, I suppose if someone's written the song and said, that's my song, and Robbie will say, you know, somebody says, well, that's great, but I'm not going to make any money. But if I add a line, then I'm going to put my line in it. And that writer has to decide whether to go with that, that idea or not. And if they don't, then obviously they won't make any money. But if they go with the idea of that person suddenly adding a couple of words... You know, they don't get quite as rich, but they probably will be richer than ever. But they they realise they've had to step down, which probably makes them feel a bit irritated in the middle of the night. Well, you're right, actually. 
but let me tell you this: they wouldn't get fifty fifth. They wouldn't get fifty percent. <laughs> no, but I think it was like change a word, claim a third, or something like that. So. Well, I well, in my news, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything's everything's sort of, sort of borrowed. It is, it, uh, even if just subliminally, isn't it? Oh yes, I, I think Bono once used that line. Every I don't know. Anyway, look, look, we haven't even got to the band actually, have we? Now, so you got your band together with Bob, Dick, Gary, Ed. Great names. No, did that all... It was Eddie old Bob, Dick and Gary. <laughs> did it all come together relatively easily? Yeah. You found... As I you've... said earlier, it all came real quick, you know, because we were in the right... I mean, I'm, having been in the Sex Pistols film really helped us because we'd formed the band and, I, I, and I'd written Who Killed Bambi for the Sex Pistols and then Sid Vicious killed himself, so that idea was out the window so then I formed my own band but I had a little bit of money from the publishing just, yes. you know, for things like bass player wanted in the melody maker all these things cost a bit of money buy electric guitar you know so I could do all this hire a rehearsal room so we formed the band put an ad in the paper and eventually got the band and we were sort of carrying on we were doing quite well we were pretty good but then when the rock and roll swindle film came out and everyone saw the who killed band you see the gig after that was absolutely grand and Chrissy Hine was down the front. She threw her handkerchief on the stage. Nice. I mean, it was a great night. Suddenly, you know, everything changed. Wow, that's good. That must have felt really exciting. And what was your... Did you get a manager and a record label quite quickly from there? Well, no, I, see, I, I was the manager. In private, I was Dave Whitaker. So I'd ring up and say, you're going to be a... We, you know, you're going to come and see the band. Because if you talk about it in the third person, they're more likely to believe you. But yes. I don't, you know, if, it, if I say, look, we are really brilliant. I mean, I'm, I'm not lying, but they, they're going to think I am. Yes, it's probably best to sort of have create your altered ego, actually. It's probably, it's hard to big yourself up, but it's easier to big someone else up. I've always found anyway. So, um, <laughs> but you, um, mm. but you're, yeah, no, that's debatable. Um, so in, with w, you, so your first single, <sighs> W-E-A, right, A-side, real fun, B-side, what's in a word. How was your recording experience with that? Well, that was a, that was before we got it was a little offshoot record label from the publishing man Rob Dickens. So it was a one-off. Um, well, we went down to the studio and we recorded it. You know, yes, it's very all middle. It's not very well produced. Right. But anyway, we did in the Red House and Paul's Road, North One. Nice. Yes. <coughs> but then, then. There's nothing to say, you know. Yeah, that's it. I know it was a conversational cul-de-sac, that one. Sorry about that. Um, but then... <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't... Go to the next one. You see, well... this, is, this is what life, life is. Yeah. cul-de-sacs. I know. Just sort of Trip take that and just walk back and carry on. There's like slips, trips and falls. That's what you put on your health. Was it um, risk assessment? So then Stiff Records comes along. That's your, that's your gateway to success, isn't it? Well, I don't know. A record. Yes. How was your experience with that? Mixed. Uh, and I was telling somebody was doing a book about Stiff Records and I was saying things to him like Temple Tudor standing up to Stiff Records was like entrusting your prized Stradivarius to a gorilla <laughs> um, and generally remarks of that to tenor but he did eventually he reminded me he said but look Ed they did sign you they gave you the record deal without which you couldn't have got in the charts yes so I, I will always be grateful to them for that but you see well, how it happened because we were playing dingles and all the record companies were there because we were hot. And some blokes thought I was slagging off rockabillies. 
well, I'm completely misunderstanding, because I love rockabilly. He threw a glass at me, and all the blood ran down my face. And then we launched into a version of My Girl, a sort of quiet, soulful thing. Mm. I thought, this must look fantastic. You know, three loving every minute of it. And then we rushed to finish set in the dressing room. But Dave Robinson of Skip Records is the only one from, who came and he said, are you all right? And he sort of looked at my wound and tended it in mm. this tiny little room. So I thought, well, we'll go with him. Yes. That was a bit of a Mary Magdalene moment, wasn't it, actually, tending your wounds? You know, that was quite romantic, I guess. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say that, because um, <laughs> he had been a roadie himself. But he was simply being sort of efficient. Yes. I mean, you know, he had his points. But he was a brutal despot. Right. Was he your Colonel Parker? Well, he wasn't a manager. He was the record company. We no. hadn't got a manager. But were you slightly scared of him? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yes, he was kind of... He was a harsh man. And when we first went into the record company, when, when he'd stopped having to be charming to get us to agree... Yes. He looked a real sort of brutal thug at one point. I thought, fuck me. <laughs> but look, his carrot was, look, sign with me and go on a three-month tour of Europe, England, UK, Europe, America. Well, man, I mean, that's just... <laughs> if you don't turn that down, that's just like paradise. Yeah, that's, that's the one, isn't it? You're not going to... Yeah, there you go. Just sign me up. He's... And how was Jack? Exactly. I'll do anything. Where do I sign? I mean, that's it. Yeah. I won't even... I, you know, because... It's hard to get a tour, is it? Because most bands have to, you know, they get their mums out in the, the, the amp to the pub in the back of the yes. hatchback, and you know, and it's a white, but they're always one off. That's right. Yes, it's it's kind of driving from a, your home up to a gig, back again, back. You know, there's never there's no those early years. The indie nights are um, very sort of yeah erratic, really, aren't they? So how did you find? No, it's, a, it's a shame for the band because. It's only when you do some in a row that you find out how good you are and begin to get, you know, even within your own limitations, you need to do five in a row to yeah. be the best. And how did you yeah, find it? Are. Did you enjoy being on the road? Oh, man, I love touring. I love performing. Well, I'm, uh, you know, of course. I took it seriously. I made sure I got an tip. I gave my all to every single show in case it was the first time anyone had come to see us. I was just imitating the Stones. Right. What, what, would, what would Mick Jagger do? And I went running to keep fit enough to do it. It's really tiring to jump about and sing. Yes. And I've never ran at school. I was a sort of spindly weed who hated sport at school. <coughs> but, you know, that was necessary. And people used to say, God, what are you on? I want some. Right. And it's very disappointing when you say, well, a five-mile run and a pint of bitter slowly drunk before the show. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And how did you find Jack? Because you had Dave and Jack, they were a double gang at Stiff, weren't they? Jack? Jack Riviera. Oh, Jake Riviera. Jake, sorry. Jack, Jesus. Yes. Have you just got that off the internet? No, I just, my, my memory's not good. Jack. He, well, he left before, he, him and Dave Robinson started Stiff Records and then they, they split up into two. Jake Riviera went off to Elvis Costello. Right. And, uh, so it was just Dave Robinson's operation. Yes. And um, he ruled with a rod of iron and worked all his bands into the ground. You'd never get a day off once you signed up. Right. Yes, you've got, to gra- you've got to grab it. So then, but the good thing is, your first album, which was kind of done in 81, this was, this was 
recorded with, you know, um, Alan Wynne Stanley, the famous producer of the time, wasn't he? Yes. He'd worked with Clive Langer. So did was what was that experience like? Well, Alan's a wonderful man, but why he's so winning with his partnership with Clive Langer, and they do Matt, all of Madness singles, it's because Langer's the great one for the musical arrangement. What about a trumpet bit here, da-da-da? You know, with a time signature there. Whereas Alan Winstanley is an absolute wizard on the desk and get any sound, any quality of, you know, really, he was more like a sound. So between the two of them, but on his own, he's simply, you know, he's not the musical man. Right. So I wished, I mean, I loved him, but our second album was too rushed. And, you know, it was a lot of money spent on, if only we'd had about another year, it would have been, you know, could have stood the test of time better, perhaps. Yes. And how did you, um, can you, what was your memory of uh, writing and then recording sounds, sounds, songs of a thousand men? Did songs that... of a thousand men? Yes. No, that one, no, 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 I meant sound, swords of a thousand <gasps> men. <laughs> I love that man. So the other good one, they just put it on that Haven Holiday ad. Have you seen it? No. On Haven Holiday, Swords has been on it. Um, and they paid me a lot of money for that. Oh. So I rang up the, record, uh, the publishing. They didn't tell me. Yes. I said, you know, I hope you. Said, oh, yeah, don't worry. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, Swords of a thousand pounds, mate. Oh, love you so much. Yes. And did it come, did you, can you remember writing it? <laughs> on the Summer Stiff Tour, which was three months, every day a gig, travelling in a coach. Well, I had an acoustic with me. Because I always have got a guitar with me. Yes. Even though I didn't play guitar on stage, I was a guitarist. So there's a horrible little Kazi on board the coach, which vaguely gave me the impression that I had privacy. Mm. Which of course, they must have been able to overhear. So I was just strumming away the chords, um, swords. I hadn't really got any words, but I was just working on the rhythm. Because I thought, oh, well, God, I've got to write a hit. So what's, what, what do you need for a hit? Well, first thing, you need a great rhythm. So I thought, Spirit in the Sky, do you know that one? Oh, yes, absolutely. From I thought, right, well, I want that rhythm. So that's what the rhythm I, I wanted, swords. <laughs> but the, the lads weren't quite clever enough to play it like that. So they could only play it like, like you hear it. I thought, oh, well, that'll do. Yes. That was lucky. So I played that just for the whole three months, thinking in my head, cogitating. And then when we had our first rehearsal, as a back after the tour, you know, we were playing. I said, well, what could, be, what could be, it be about? And then something, you know, the grand old Duke of York came into it. And they had 10,000 men, you know. And anyway, I went back home and suddenly all sort of a thousand men. And I just about you know 20 minutes to write all the words out all this it just all came out nice yes and did you at that stage were you conscious of the kind of what was going on you know around the musical landscape at that stage because we'd had the sort of punk then there was that sort of post-punk period and then the 80s had sort of appeared and we'd had thatch we got thatcher and reagan and then you know the, the there was the the new romantic phase and new wave, I suppose. Well, we'd always Thatcher and Rake politically we weren't aware of until the Falklands. No one was. No, absolutely. But then, you know, this was kind of like 80, 81, was kind of the, those indie bands like um, 
I don't know, a teardrop explodes and big country. And... Uh, it's a Depeche Mode and all the computers sort of sound. Yeah, and then a and few... And the 80s disco sound, yes. lots of makeup. But then there were those bands like, you know, Julian Cope as well as Echo and the Bunnymen and those kind of other, you know, Orange Juice as well had come along as well. Were you sort of conscious of those kind of, that kind of early indie sound that had started? Because in... Well, I was to an, to an extent. I mean, I didn't have their records, but they all seemed like... Sort of comrades in a slightly different genre. I mean, I've met, I bumped into Julian a couple of times, and we always chatted away yes. happily. Um, but we were a children's band because the people who bought swords, three hundred fifty thousand of them, was every twelve-year-old boy in the land, and no one else. <laughs> right. And I only found that out twenty years later. And I tell you what, I was so pleased when I found out. Because it was a bit distressing at the time to be in the top ten and we're not packing the place up. And that's because, you know, 90% of our fans are at home in bed. Right. Tricky. Yes. Did that Was that kind of frustrating? Because obviously it wasn't long before the band sort of did the, you know, things were going slightly difficult. You were getting into a quite difficult phase with the second album, I'm guessing. Well, after the second album... You see, what it was, there was gradual resentment building up because I was getting more money because I'd happened to, it was, I'd happened to have written the two hits we had. So I got a big, you know, I was getting the old big check from publishing or something. Yes. And they just sort of be resentful. And there was a horrid sort of passive-aggressive atmosphere building up. And, you know, I tried to say, come on, let's talk about what's going on. Let's, have, let's flash it out. But they didn't want to do that. It all became incredibly nasty. But once again, for that story, the longer version, we'll have to wait for the book. Right, yes. Oh, no, this book's going to... This, this, you must have had to delve deep into this book, actually. So with the, bar, the breakup of the band, did you the have what? a... what? Delve deepens? No, no. You had to delve deep into that kind of memory to uh, get... Well, <laughs> I know. But you do each bit at a time. You just focus in and think about what each little bit you're doing. You walk in the park, write that bit, and then move on. Yes. Did you get to that point within... Have you written this piece in the book, by the way? I'm just coming up to the breakup now. Oh, blimey. So, um, yes. I've been at it since St. Patrick's Night. Oh, OK. Working on the book, you know, every day, properly, like a job. Well, absolutely. You, you have to, yes. So did did you have a moment? Because I know speaking to various people, sometimes, you know, they just sit down and just say, I, I just hate this, I'm leaving, and that's it. Some have said, you know, look, we hate each other, so can we just break up? And everyone said, yep, that's good. And some people just didn't turn up to the rehearsal. What happened with your band? I went to the Marquee, and that I often did. Fantastic club. And the governor said, oh, hello, Ed. Oh, sorry to hear you cancelled your gig in a couple of weeks' time. I said, what do you mean? We haven't cancelled the gig. He said, yeah, your manager rang up and said it's cancelled. They're plotting behind my back, David. Ooh. I said to him, listen, watch my lips. That gig is going on. Even if I go on with a, a bowl of cold pudding, man, that gig is not cancelled. He said, I never cancelled. The show must always go on. I'm, you know, fanatical, the old-fashioned like that. Yeah, rather. <laughs> well, it's just an instinct. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know so much. Well, maybe, right, anyway. So I had... So I, I had Dick stayed with me. And we got the drummer and bass player from another band in where we rehearsed. And after 100 quid each, he said, spend the next two weeks rehearsing the Temple Tudor set, which they did. He was a much better drummer, actually. The place was rammed. I swear, practically nobody knows this. Um, <coughs> and it was just 
fantastic. Yes. I thought it was over by then, wasn't it? Yes. This but at is... least we did the gig. Yes. And then, I mean, I guess it was, you never really had much chance to promote your the album, Let, Let the Four Winds Blow, either, did you? That was... Well, we had a big tour, 45 dates in 42 days promoting it. Yes. In the winter of 81. And did that, was that the one where you just realised there wasn't such a big audience? No. The audience was growing. But, I mean, the sales weren't great. And and we released Bathwater, which wasn't a hit. And then the last one we released was Let the Four Winds Blow, which wasn't, which was only half good. And that was that didn't chart. So then that was it, really. Yeah. And then, well, and then but by, by then the band had split into two, so the day... So then what happens then when the band... Um, yeah, so you have that last gig. You'd done the tour, which you said had been incredibly successful, but the singles hadn't been so so fantastic. So the, sing- the sales of the singles and, and the album, obviously, and the band had got res- slightly resentful with the money. But then, yeah, so then you, from, from the mid-'80s, what happens then with you? Well, I ran away to the join the theatre. Right. I just wanted a break. I think what it was, because I'd worked non-stop. I mean, every single day, such was my determination to succeed, that I sacrificed everything. Um, but I hadn't really stopped for about three or four years then. Yeah. And I was simply just exhausted, because I'd had to do everything, front the band, write the songs, design the sleeve, think of the look, you know what I mean? Yeah. Manage it. Before we had a, we had a sort of my bloke who was called the manager. But I was doing all the phone calls, you know. So I was just exhausted, man. Absolutely. I'm not even ashamed of seeing it. Well, no. Well, most people, because I've done a few interviews with people from the 60s who'd been in that scene, like Barry Miles, and uh, who'd been sort of very part of that kind of culture. And they said, and I asked them, what, you know, why they finished, why it kind of, why they disappeared, you know, when the 70s appeared. And, uh, and they said, well, we were just really tired. We just, we'd had enough. We'd sort of, we'd been doing it for five years and, and sort of had a lot of ups and downs and a lot of people had been slightly burned and most people had taken too many drugs and drinks so they just needed to have a bit of a break and that was it. Tiredness does happen, doesn't it? Well, maybe there's too much importance upon it being the original personnel. I mean, when you think of a symphony orchestra, you know, if the guy can play the violin, he, he gets the job. So, I mean, for a while... I'd always reform Tempo Tudor with, with, with the musicians that played the last gig and we'd do a tour and it'd be all be wonderful, but we'd come home, well, then what? I mean, if I wrote a new song, the record, no record company wanted to sign it. We don't deal in one-offs, okay? Right. Well, I've been writing these one-offs for the last 40 years, you know. Yeah, interesting. So Did... what I'm saying is that you can play the Tempo Tudor songs with a cracking band and it doesn't really matter. This is true. We have, we, yes, we As long as I'm in it, you know. Yeah. As long as I'm in it. Well, absolutely. I think you do, you do. otherwise it'd be a bit strange. But then you, you your sort of acting career and, and sort of roles within the 80s and in the 90s are quite phenomenal. And you were definitely on a bit of a zeitgeist moment because you were in the film that everyone got very excited about, Absolute Beginners. And then... Oh. Did you enjoy that experience? Yeah. I mean, it did yeah, have. A... Julian Temple um, cast me as Ed the Ted. 
Yeah, I was the first person he cast because I'd obviously met him from the Sex Pistol audition times. Yes. That was fun, that was. And well, I had, had a... no agent then, so I got paid pitifully low. But it was great fun working with Irene Handel. Oh, man. She's just like, I mean... Yeah, and I met all these people in the rock and roll swindle. Well, absolutely. No, I, but I, yeah, but I, and also in the absolute beginners. Yeah, fantastic fun. Yes. And then you went very art house with one the director that we all tried to like in the 80s and 90s, Peter Greenaway, we drowned him by numbers. Oh, he's a horrible man. Really horrible. Um, you see, but I, it's not like I'm choosing. But you see, when I left the band, suddenly the, the acting doors seemed to be opened. And I thought, well, just because I'd had a bit of success, but just because you could write a hit song doesn't mean to say you're a good actor. But anyway, I wasn't complaining. So it was better than being turned down for the job of a spear carrier in Scarborough. <laughs> so I went along with it. But you get lots of time off, and then you get a job. You're so eager. You don't care what it is. You say, yes, please. Yes. But the Peach Greenaway one, Drowning by Numbers, Juliet Stevenson was in it. And she's one of our top actresses. And yeah. she had a scene, she had to go to the North Sea. I think I was shot in Suffolk, actually. Was this the one in Southwold? It was freezing cold, and, she, and he didn't care about keeping her warm in between takes. He got pleurisy. Oh, my God. Yes, that sounds rather horrendous, actually. But, um, yeah, I think that's... No, he, wasn't, what... he wasn't kind. He was just into his art. He, wasn't, he didn't... The actors were just like pawns. They weren't humans. Yeah. Tough guy. Intense films, but then with the band, you sort of, you, you know, is it the case then that uh, once, once kind of, you've bitten the apple, you can never let it go? Because obviously, two thousand, the millennium, you bring it back again. No, 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 that's not the story at all. Um, what happens is, I mean, because the acting sort of peters out. So I don't, I didn't really like. It's a terrible world acting. It's an utterly frivolous profession. And it's completely packed with hideously middle-class, woke, liberal elite, virtue-signalling communists with all the humorlessness that that implies. I mean, you know, they're not my people. It's like I was a cow in a field of sheep looking over the hedge at a field of cows and thinking, hang on, mate, I'm in the wrong field. (laughs) (laughs) So eventually the phone stopped ringing from the acting world. I was utterly down and out. I watched a video... I'd never dared watch of me 10 years earlier doing a solo gig in Sunderland, which had been terrifically successful. We had Jimmy Nail's band come on at the end. He was in the charts with Crocodile Shoes. Nice. And I thought, man, that's pretty good. I can do that. And it really was good. It was me on my own. And I, could, I rocked the house on my own. So I'd become a good guitarist by then. Mm. So the 15-year tour I'd just finished doing with me on my own, with a guitar. Well, it's interesting, because I remember many years... I remember thinking Billy Bragg's got it sorted, really, even though I'm not a huge fan, but you realise it keeps life quite simple. Unless something drastic happens, you're not going to fall out with yourself. Um, but then a few years... Well, decades later, I saw Hazel O'Connor doing this kind of solo tour. I mean, she did have a harpist behind her, but actually, let's forget about that. But it was basically she realised that she had got to that point where, you know what was she going to do with the rest of her life? And I did an interview and she said she'd seen this person in, I think it was Edinburgh at the Fringe Festival or whatever. And um, and they, they they were solo, you know, doing a solo show. Then they did their little number. Then they went behind their little trestle table, sold some, you know, merchandise. 
And she was like, Andy, I can't do that. And this person said, well, yes, you can. And you, yes, you should, because actually you take control. You know, you know what you're doing. No one's going to rip you off. You know, your margins, talking money here, are kind of quite good. So you can make a bit of money and you'll enjoy it rather than getting all the other angst that you used to have and getting ripped off that you used to have as well. So she, that was what she started to do again and probably has stayed with it. So but did you have the same kind of light bulb moment? Well, no, but it just inevitably, that's, that's brilliant what she did. You have to do that. I mean, I, I agree with all of it, except for selling. I can't go down the front and then behind a trestle table. I'm, I'm too showbiz for that. <laughs> I'm not humble enough for that. Sign my but arm. apart from that, it is a good idea. Yes. Um, so I could just about, well, there was I with absolutely nothing, no money, nothing. So I thought, well, I can get 50 quid by playing, playing a gig. So I rang up Big Steve, said, can I play your Camden Club? And that went well. And, it, and, I, and I've just, and then, and it, so I played, every, I've just done every single week or every other week for 15 years without stopping, never being more than two weeks away from the next gig, constantly gearing up for the show. Yeah. And I learned how to, for instance, 2,000 skinheads, have them in the palm of my hand and get them to do anything I want, armed with nothing but one guitar. Now that's when you start to get into the realm of magic. That's when the experience kicks in. Yeah. That is a whole nother level up from a mere band, you know. Well, absolutely. That is that's where you're. I'm not like Billy Bragg uh, because I'm also trying to be like the Rolling Stones, even though I've only got one guitar, <laughs> which is problematical because it doesn't sound. As... But then, what if you're bringing swords, for instance, and I um, just strumming it on the guitar? They still love it. But then if I move off the microphone, obviously my voice disappears. So they sing it twice as loud. They don't they want to hear it. So they get themselves to play it to themselves. Yes. And all these tricks like that, you know. It's really rather wonderful. <clears throat> or else you stop the guitar. So there's absolute silence going on. But they can hear it in their heads. Yes. That is stage man that's stagecraft though, isn't it? That's that's three years at Rada. It must help. Well, I, no, it wasn't really Ryder, I suppose partly. No, but what got me into Ryder made me good at that. But I'm a very slow learner. It took me a long time to master. It took me a long time to master everything I mastered. Yes, but then, you know, we had that... Very um, slow learner, which is not a euphemism for being thick. Well, um, <laughs> but there is that... Um, in this case. In Malcolm, this case. But there is that Malcolm Gladwell, you know, 10,000 hours before you can hit genius. So it does take, it does take a lot of practice. But then you... But, <laughs> But I know before you're Sergeant Pepper. But then 2018 was this a big year for you because you you pulled pull a band together again? Did I? Yeah, I thought the band's reformed, featuring Rita, Ellen, Tony, Thomas, and various other people. Or was this just a one-off of the oh, album? Oh, the Norwegian thing. That's it. Okay, so I went over to Norway to do a little solo gig. It was on your small festival. We'd love to have you come and do long. So I went along and said, some of our local musicians have loved some of your songs. Would it be okay maybe you'll play them with them? And I said, great, because lots of times bands come on at the end and they play swords. Yeah. Oh, yes. The local support band, you know, Darlington or Keithley or wherever you happen to be. <coughs> and it's great, you know. Yes. Nice way to end it. But they'd like ten of the songs and they're all really musos. And I thought, fucking hell. <laughs> so my set just, I just rushed through a couple of songs on me and the band came on and suddenly it was a whole band 
with three backing girl singers in harmony. Right. That was a love affair, and then we all came off after. Let's form a band. You know, it was Judy Garland and Ricky, Mickey Rooney. Yeah, what should we call ourselves? The Temple Jude Vikings. Temple Jude and the Vikings. Anyway, and so then, then we said, let's re-record the album so we own it all. So the next year or so, I was doing that. But I just flew over to, to add the vocals every now and then because they were doing it all. Right. The music themselves. And, um, yeah. In chalet in snow with about four foot of snow on the roof of the studio. Oh, excellent. That must have been quite a magical moment. Nice little love affair I had with Norway. Yeah. But it's sort of over now. Yeah, so much. I mean, that's a whole chapter. They came over, but I mean, it wasn't viable. No, that's a lot when of... When a band lives in Norway, you know what I mean? You can't rehearse with them. It no. can't be, ever be a serious thing. Yeah. But anyway, what's good is that you've managed to sort of keep a life in music and entertainment all your life. This is, this is quite a feat. Well, actually, I know that is quite amazing. Well, as I'm looking back and writing out the memoirs, you know, I have a higher, higher opinion of myself than I did before because I never look back normally. It's just, especially with gigs, you've just got to focus on the next gig and that's all of your life, as if you've never done a gig only that, only that gig counts, because it's only you have to focus to so you to make it work. <coughs> you know, it's got yes. to prepare and everything. Yeah, and what would you say to an eighteen-year-old self starting out in that interesting and and rocky world that is kind of music and entertainment? Have faith, believe in yourself. That's good. Yes, did you struggle with that? Well, I mean, you know, I don't know what I could say yes, I could say no. There's always a built part of me which was sure we could make it. So I was damn well, wanted to jolly well try. So at least if we failed, it would be on the basis that we were no good rather than we didn't have to be seen. Yes. And is it... But, you know, we were only a very knockabout, crude sort of band, a pop band, really, in the tradition of Slade, you know, something like that. Nice sort of... Yeah. Pop group. I guess it would have been difficult for the band to have fitted into that 80s world of the Smiths and the go-betweens and indie pop or the Trevor Horn sound of Durant, you know, that Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I know or, what you mean. You know, they, they, well, we did try. On our last single, we did a photo session and we all had makeup on and frills and we went down Berman and Nathan's and had all this sort of Mozart gear. And Dave Robinson took one look at the photograph, he ripped it up. Because we all looked like absolute queens, you know. Because <laughs> that was the fashion then. Yes. And he said, oh, mascara now. He said, no, you're ridiculous. So he supervised the replacement photo session. And he got us all like pirates and dressed in sort of rags on board a ship. And I was sort of smeared in theatrical dirt and wielded a dagger, you know. Yeah. That's much more. Like, he was, in saying that, he was actually correct. I uh, thank him for that. Because I once saw... A photograph years later of the aborted session. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> Probably a bit more panto, wasn't it? Really, I guess it was a. It was, panto. was it a bit of a tricky band to you know the 
I was going to say branding, but the image of it. Did you did you sort of struggle with that side of it, trying to sort of fit in in that way that you didn't really look punk, but you didn't look new romantic, and you definitely didn't look indie. Well, no, we had that. We were lucky enough because with the the, the, the theatrical costumiers, um, so we just dressed up as knights and all of that. So people immediately got it. And so every time we did a video, we'd go down Burma and Nathan's and, you know, be the 17th century rural peasants or a bunch of sort of 80th sailors, sailors in a rowing boat for, for bath water. Yes. Um, so it's a great look because... Okay, it's old-fashioned, but it's never going to go out of date. No, absolutely. And, of course, the costumes are much better than in them days. But if you're trying to keep along with the Durand, Durand and the fashion, man, you, you know, the following week you're out of date. So you're on a hiding to nothing doing that. I know. But I had no instinct, of course, for any of that. Well, it's tricky. I guess at the time, you know, we can all be wise later, but at the time, you know, it's hard to know exactly what move. And and everything, I mean, I did an interview with Richard Strange and he and he was saying, well, we were two years too early for punk. And then, but the people in the audience were all quite young and they, they sort of formed punk bands, but we were we were sort of over by the time that really scene happened. And, and a lot of times it's about the, the timing, isn't it, really? I know, I feel a bit sorry for Richard there. He did... It was fatally tight. The timing absolutely did for him. But um, never mind, he, he did all right in the end, didn't he? He did well. He's alive, kicking. Is that the thing that, um, I mean, when you sort of bump into, you know, your sort of colleagues, are they colleagues? Anyway, you know, you know people who've also been... Peers. In, peers, yeah, people who've been around as, as long as, in the music industry as long as you have. Do you sort of have those kind of interesting chats of like, wow, we've made it, mate. We've we're, we're still. Oh, it's oh, it's so nice to meet because you you're always aware of each other, but because you're always doing your own tour, you don't often meet except perhaps in the motorway services. You you come across each other, <coughs> but there was a time when the German band Die Totenhosen, who sell more than Rod Stewart in Germany, yes, but they're multi-millionaire rock band. Who, they covered a load of our songs from that era, Undertones, Tempo Tudor, you know, etc. And then they flew us all over just to give us a party to thank us because the record went platinum. So it's about the first time you can sit around with all these famous... I mean, I knew them all, but to spend a bit of time together was really good fun. Well, absolutely. And everyone's terribly friendly. All musicians are absolutely lovely, all of them. <laughs> um, yeah. With only two exceptions. What were they? Do you really want me to tell? Oh, God. The only unfriendly people I ever met, yes. out of all the famous people I've met, yes. was Nick Lowe and um, that bloke out of Genesis, Peter Gabriel. Oh, right, Peter Gabriel. They were both really horrible. God. Don't for that. No, God, and... Um... Of all the people I thought you were going to say, I would have never thought those two. I thought they would have been kind of like quite down to earth. Well, sure did I. I thought, this, all right, mate, hello. You know, this be friendly. Yes. Just because they might not have liked my record. Unless <laughs> <laughs> they've got to be mean to me, man. Yeah, don't, don't want... Yeah, that's terrible. Hold. Don't shoot the messenger. Yeah, I know. Anyway, look, it's been good. Look, I better let you rock on, actually, and I better get on myself. But thank you ever so much. And when I do this, I'll send you the link, and then you can put it up in your... You probably don't have... Um, do you have social media? Oh, no, but I've got a man who does my Facebook, and he knows all about that. Oh, right. I'd love what... to do that. Okay, well, what I'll do... 
apart from there'll be a strange gap in the middle, um, but I'll edit that beautifully together. Um, is what, I'll send. What gap? Oh, where where the phones had died. Oh gosh. Oh yes. I know. Oh I know. my word. I know what went on. But anyway, look, I'll send him. I'll send you a link in that email that um, we've done, and then you can always use it to um, put elsewhere because people love that. And actually, when just briefly then. When's the book coming out? I don't know, mate. I'm still writing it. Fair enough. I mean, I've got an, a literary agent I intend to ring, but I think well, there's no point ringing them now. No, don't bother. Just wait. Just go, wait so until... So I'm, uh, I'm just getting on with it, and it'll happen organically, like an oak tree. Yeah. No, and I'm it's... not going to work to no deadline. No. Bollocks to that. It's horrible working to deadlines. Yeah. But things are never that important. Yeah. So the answer is, I'm not sure, maybe, maybe another year it'll take. Yeah, don't should be about it. Don't don't, but don't forget, John Peel was writing his, and then halfway round through, he died. So his wife had to finish it, which kind of spoiled it a bit, really. So, um, well, I've got loads of notes anyway, uh, long, in longhand. Oh, good. The chapters I've yet to type out. Yes. Um, but the, but the syntax won't be very good. No. Because there's three things writing a book: a the syntax, b the story, c philosophical. Um, what's it called? Ref what one finally gets to, realisations. Reflection? <coughs> well, philosophical conclusions. I mean, and you've got to, you know, so therefore what I've learned out of life is, and, you know, something wise comes then. That, that sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. Hindsight. Well, it's really nice to talk to you, David. Yeah. Look and that is a cut. Anyway, and that's also the end of the interview, apart from the last few minutes where we... Say goodbye, it's very emotional and you don't really want to hear all that, do you? Or perhaps you do. Anyway, you're not. So, that was me in conversation with Edward Tudor Pole, talking about life, love, poetry, Tim Pole Tudor, acting and much, much more. This has been David Eastall. This has been The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, make it nice though. Uh, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Or, and... Um, also, if you want to hear any of these interviews, you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, just do C86 show, and there's hundreds of them. So enjoy, fill your boots, it will um, blow your mind. Right, have a great week, stay safe and all that stuff. Anyway, there you go.